So we're going to start off today with some fun interaction, um, talking about the different barriers to cross-cultural ministry. So as we go throughout the night, Mike will be talking more about different strategies to um, missions and what our roles as Christians um, can look like within global missions. Uh, but we're going to start out with um, talking about cross-cultural barriers and how to navigate those. And so first, before we're talking about the differences in cultures um, across different countries, I think that we can all acknowledge that we all have our own cultures, even within our own families, and how our family cultures have shaped us in a lot of ways um, to think certain ways, to behave different ways, to interact in, in certain ways. And so we're going to do a quick poll um, just talking about what maybe are our barriers to the idea of moving overseas. So that's like when you, if someone was to ask you, hey, Sarah, why aren't you a cross-cultural missionary in Japan? Like what would be some of those barriers? And so we're going to try this out. It's a, a texting poll. And so you can actually text Shannon Bowman 415. I know it's annoying. It's kind of long, but um, if I wanted to customize it, I had to pay for the premium, and so I left out Shannon Bowman, 415. Um, but you, the actual number you text is 22333. Um, and then you can, um, uh, so you text 22333, and then in your text message, you write Shannon Bowman, 415, and then pick A, B, C, D, E, or F as your answer. So the question is, why would it be hard for me to move overseas? We'll see how this how this works. We have we have more polls coming up after this too. So this is just our our tester one. Okay, so as they're coming in, um, when we think about the idea of why it might be hard for us to go overseas, um, there could be a lot of different barriers. And so some of the ones that I picked were. Um, that it would be hard to say bye to friends and family, that uh, support raising doesn't sound fun, slash it sounds uncomfortable, um, wanting to start a family in the future, maybe you're still single and you think you're more likely to find a husband if you stay in the States, and so the idea of moving overseas seems risky, um, or maybe you're married but you want to have kids and raising kids overseas sounds hard. Um, maybe you don't have any cross-cultural experience, and so the idea of moving overseas is just way bigger than what you could even think about doing. Um, travel, maybe you just don't like flying, and so that's a legit reason <laughs> to put up there. Um, well, I don't know if legit's the right word, but, and then other, maybe you have other things that you're thinking about. Okay, so I think this is probably all of us. Um, so support raising is the number one answer, which is kind of what I was expecting because when we think about the culture that we've grown up with here in America, we've heard a lot of different um, things from our culture. We've heard things like financial independence is valuable or work hard for what you want. Um, 
or maybe nothing is for free or some different things we've maybe heard from our parents or our teachers or different people who have mentored us, Dave Ramsey. <laughs> um, and so the idea of support raising can sound like something that would be going against the way that we've been ingrained to think because it would involve us taking an uncomfortable step and asking someone else to help support us. Um, and so we're gonna talk now more about culture and what worldview is, like defining those things. But I think that this poll is a good place to start of just like even acknowledging that there are different messages we've received throughout our lives that have influenced the way we think and how we make decisions too. So what is culture? Um, the definition of culture is the sum total of ways of living built up by a group of human beings and transmitted from one generation to another. It can also be defined as a sum of values, traditions, and views developed by a group of people. Um, another definition I'll throw out there is worldview. Um, our worldview is the mental and experiential grid that a person filters events and derives conclusions from. So our culture shapes our worldview. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, but that's kind of um, one of my favorite books. They're from my connection group, so they hear me talk about it a lot. Um, it's not a missions book. It's just a book about what does it look like to be a healthy Christian who acknowledges their emotions and wants to draw near to God through um, spending time in his word and prayer and um, doing that in a way that's filtered somewhat through um, a healthy view of, of our emotions and the way God created us to feel different things also. Um, and I was reading that book this week for like my fifth time. And as I was reading it, something that stood out to me was from um, Matthew ten thirty seven. This is the verse that says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Um, and that's a verse that if you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard. And at least for me, so how I've kind of viewed that verse is something that you read and you're like, okay, that's really extreme, moving on. <laughs> um, but um, I think because I was also preparing for this class, I was reading it through a new lens or like a refreshed lens of thinking about, wow, this is actually talking a lot about our culture. And um, Jesus is not just asking like, leave your specific mom or dad, but leave the um, cultural um, identity that has been built up around you to follow him. And so, um, so in that book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Peter Scazzaro, something like that is his last name, um, was just um, hammering in on the point that discipleship is the putting off of sinful patterns and habits of our families of origin, or my translation is our culture, um, and being transformed to live as members as, of Christ's family. And so, um, so, yeah, I think that when we're thinking about 
cross-cultural ministry, we have to also think about what are some ways that we have been shaped as individuals to think what's right or what's wrong that we need to leave behind in order to share the gospel with someone. And so um, the good news of Matthew 28, the Great Commission passage that we talked about last week, is that Jesus definitely um, is making it clear that he transforms all cultures and that all cultures are tainted by sin, but they need intervention of Jesus, and all cultures need a redeemer to save them from this present darkness. And so um, we're going to talk now a little bit about um, the differences in cultures and just some cultural norms, knowing that this is like very much a generalization across cultures, but just to kind of show how different people from different regions of the world um, think. Um, but as we're talking about it, we're also acknowledging that God created culture and that it's a really uh, beautiful thing. And in heaven, I hope that we will see culture like fully expressed in its fullness. Right now, it's, it's tainted and we um, see throughout the Bible that some like reasons why that is, is from the fall and um, the Tower of Babel and creating limitations on how we interact with people from different cultures. Um, but um, that's just a reason why it's difficult. Um, those things are reasons why it's difficult to cross cultures, but they're not reasons not to cross cultures because Matthew 28 includes all cultures in it. And so um, regardless of if we're talking about international travel or foreign business or global church planting, it re requires some work to enter into a different culture. And so um, that's why we're starting with different cultural barriers before talking about strategies. And so um, we're going to keep doing some more polls. We're going to put up the next poll now. Um, and as we're doing the polls, um, I want you guys to answer for yourself which one you think you fall in. And so I'm going to define what option A and B is, you pick the answer, and then um, just kind of for fun to see, like, if it's true that all of us in this room would fall into the Western, like, cultural norms, or if some of us kind of differ from that, which, again, it's a generalization, so it would make sense if we differ some. Um, and then as we go through the poll, we'll talk about how we think as a group these different um, cultural norms would affect doing church planting in a different culture than what we're used to. And so um, the first one we're going to talk about is related to punctuality. So someone who is from a time-oriented culture would be focused on being on time. They want to start things on time. They want to get things done on time. Um, Someone who is from an event-oriented culture is more focused on the event that they're at and the people that they're around rather than the time. And so if they're spending time with a person, it, it doesn't matter if they're late to something else because the person they're currently with takes priority to the next event or the next, like, thing on their calendar that's coming up. And so... Um, Text in your answer if you're time-oriented or event-oriented. Mm -hmm. Or like you as an individual, if you think you're, which one you fall in. <clears throat> okay, so 
this room tends towards time-oriented, which makes sense because that's a cultural norm in the um, in Western cultures, which just a little um, spoiler alert, option A will always be Western <laughs> cultures as we go through this too. Um, but so as we think about this, knowing that we come from a Western culture that's more time-oriented, and if we were to go and do ministry, church planting in um, like China or Japan or even somewhere in Africa, um, being more of an event-oriented culture, um, let's have some group participation on how this could make church planting difficult or some things that you would have to overcome with your own cultural um, norm that you're used to in order to do ministry in a different cultural context. Anyone can share. Yeah, so like acknowledging that your view of time doesn't have to be the right view of time and being able to be flexible to adjust to someone else's understanding of what time is, which can be very hard, especially if you're type A and it's like, okay, let's get going with the next thing. Um, and I think that was like basically a perfect answer, but anyone else have any thoughts to add to that? Um, so I think when it comes to the idea of planting a church just like or, you know, doing any type of ministry overseas, recognizing that you probably won't start anything on time. And so making adjustments to your planning of like, okay, if we're going to try to gather everybody to read the Bible at 6 p.m., uh, don't schedule something for 7 p.m. because chances are you won't be done studying the Bible at 7 p.m. because they might not even be there yet. So, um, yeah, so that's, like, the first one of, like, differences in cultural norms is punctuality. So the next one we're going to talk about is communication. And so um, some cultures tend to be direct communicators. For the most part, they're able to speak directly um, into situations with facts. And these cultures also feel more comfortable about going directly to the source. So like, for example, Mike is my boss. And if I have an issue with work, I feel very comfortable to be able to talk directly to Mike about it, especially even like interpersonally, um, I can talk directly to him. Um, in an indirect culture, um, it's, it tends to be more shameful to directly tell people they are wrong, and so they will speak in an allegory or a metaphor that is often missed by people who tend to be direct communicators. So maybe instead of telling Mike, hey, this is something that's frustrating to me, maybe I would say sometimes there are people that 
frustrate me in this way and hope he gets the idea that uh, he is frustrating me or something like that. Or maybe I'll tell somebody else about it and hope that it gets to Mike. Um, Okay, so text in if you feel like you uh, prefer direct communication or indirect communication. I think this one also has a lot to do with personality, but I think that in general, like when you view cultures as a whole, like, oh, we should have done that video of like the, what is that? What are those commercials about that highlight different cultures and they keep bringing him out snake? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, Maybe we'll collect your emails and I'll send it to you because it's so funny. Anyways, okay, so direct communication is where most of us land. I wonder, is it just one person who's the 14% every time, do you think? Um, So how do you think that the differences in communication would have effects on doing ministry in a different culture than ours? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other thoughts on it? So maybe more of a need to ask for clarification also or to check assumptions. Um, Yeah, so having to learn how to be an indirect communicator in a way that would help avoid cultural misunderstandings but also not shying away from direct communication in a way that would create unhealthy habits like shrinking away from conflict or something like that. Um, So the next one we're going to talk about is um, the way of life. So do you function more as an individual or as um, like a collective group? And so people from individualistic cultures um, tend to focus on their individual rights and responsibilities with little concern about how those individual rights and responsibilities have an effect on the whole. Um, They stress individual goals. They value uniqueness, self-sufficiency, autonomy, and independence. While collectivistic cultures, I don't know why that's so hard for me. I'm also bad at English, even though it's my first and only language, but anyways, cultural barriers. Um, So, Uh, collectivistic cultures, they tend to focus on how individual decisions affect the whole. They emphasize honor to the family, tribe, and country over one's individual rights. They stress group goals, promote selflessness, tradition, and community. Okay, 100% this time. Maybe the one person felt like they had to. Oh, oh. Okay, here we go. A little, oh, wow. Great, okay, so 
for these, um, how do you think the way you view doing life as an individual or as a collective whole would affect things like church planting cross-culturally? Yeah, being able to recognize that there is value in relationships and uh, tradition and group loyalty and being able to honor that rather than trying to go around it or making your own path, which maybe feels like a slower way of getting business done than um, uh, just like moving forward because you're the boss or something like that. Um, so the next is in relation to... Um, like achieving goals or our, our priorities. And so um, culture A is task focus and they wanna focus on accomplishing the task. And culture B is person focus and they wanna focus on the people. Pretty easy uh, description of those two. Which one would you do you feel like you fall under? Okay, so still, we're still looking like we, um, the majority of us fall into the Western culture um, category as far as how we interact with, um, with this. So how would the way we achieve, like accomplishing our goals, rather it's task-oriented or people-oriented, affect church planting overseas or cross-culturally? Yeah, learning how to prioritize people would be something that you'd have to learn how to do better. Um, okay, two more. So the next one is about, like, status. So um, Western cultures tend to gain prestige through promotions. Uh, working hard uh, increases your status, while Eastern cultures tend to receive prestige regardless of how well they do at their work, but just having to do with how old they are and um, their status within the community grows with time in the community. So I think we all would say prestige. Um, so how does this affect raising up leaders and stuff like that within a church plant in an Eastern culture? 
it's a challenge. <laughs> so I think that's a good way of putting it. I think uh, it's hard. What we saw when we um, are, we had some missionaries in China and we were working with a lot of local leaders, it was really hard for them as people in their early 30s to be able to step into a role like leading a church as a pastor, even though they were totally qualified, they were great teachers, they knew the Bible, they loved Jesus, they loved to worship him. But because they were at such a young age, it was really hard for them to accept that um, position and want to move towards that because it felt against their culture. So the last one we have is regarding vulnerability. So willingness to be vulnerable. Um, cultures who uh, function out of more of um, a humility and openness type of um, posture to sharing um, what's going on in your life um, within your community or um, the people around you versus concealment of vulnerability, uh, maybe um, feeling like family matters need to not be shared, they need to be kept between the family um, because of holistic judgment. Um, it's not super important to be vulnerable. So knowing that Eastern cultures tend to be slower to be vulnerable, how would that affect doing ministry in an Eastern culture? Yeah, so knowing that it will take time to have people open up about their sin, their struggles, and that it will maybe um, take some more discipleship to be able to teach people that that's an important um, way of living a, the Christian life amongst community would be a challenge within church planting. So um, that's it for our fun interactive poll to start off our night. Um, but the reason why we started with this is because for you to be someone who does cross-cultural ministry well, you have to acknowledge that it's hard and that it takes work and you have to be a learner. And so um, hopefully as we start talking about the different uh, strategies of, of global missions, you also are thinking about, okay, I can't just assume my strategy is the best and that I would be able to just go into another cult culture and just implement this. But I have to be a learner of that culture too. So here's Mike. Mike. Great job, Shannon. Yeah, that's super fun to be able to look at the different the different polls. It was, uh, it was, there were a couple of them that were like, you know, coming a little bit close there at the end. I think somebody was just trying to be, to mess around with the poll. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, was, that was great to be able to see. And you know, the fun thing about um, cultures is that there's not really a right or wrong in those things. There's just, that's a reality of like, hey, we're on a different spectrum. And there's all types of things that, um, you know, need redeeming within, within cultures. Because for, let's just 
just take like the task and the person oriented side of things. Both of those things are pretty helpful. You know, like you want to be able to get some stuff done, but you also want to value the people that are in there. And we tend to be on a cultural side of things, way, way, way focused on the task. And that at times can be at the expense of the people that are involved. Um, but one of the building blocks of our culture and why maybe there has been some success in our culture, so to speak, or material success is because of some of those ideas of staying on task with the things like that. But on the other side of it, when you go to places that are more people oriented, uh, you, th you tend to just love the people a little bit more. It seems like even though they might be more impoverished at times, they tend to be loving life a little bit more maybe than some people uh, within our cultures as well. And so, and then you think about indirect and direct communication. I think um, there are, you know, you certainly get Jesus and his examples of sharing very indirectly towards people with, through parables and things like that. I wish I was one of those people that could come up with like these super cool parables to be able to tell everybody everything that's going on in my life. That would be awesome. Um, but I do know one thing that's really valuable about our culture, and especially even the culture of just our church, is like that direct communication to say, hey, I think this is what you need to grow in in your life. And so, so there's real value in being able to hear the different sides of it. But yes, in light of those challenges, church planting can be a very, very interesting uh, thing to be able to do. And one of the things that Shannon mentioned was the idea of like Western and Eastern cultures. And we know that those aren't like completely confined to those. They can be a little bit different here or there. Another way that people have put it before is hot and cold cultures. So oftentimes what you'll see, um, you know, like ours is a, our climate is a little bit more of a cold culture or the America is a little bit more cold this way. Uh, you know, Europe would be this way, um, you know, more of the those those types of cooler cultures would be more task oriented, more direct, all those sorts of things. Whereas these warmer climates tend to be more of like the indirect communication, the people oriented, all that sort of stuff. I don't know why that necessarily has to do with the weather or whatever, but it does break down pretty well within that. And when we talked about the 1040 window last week, a lot of that is in the more warmer types of climates. And so you definitely in cross-cultural missions will run into this a lot. And because most missions over the past 200 years have come from uh, cold climates to warm climates. We've run into tons of these issues with church planting, and it's often led to maybe a little bit more of a Western type of church planting rather than working together with others to be able to figure that out. So lots to learn, lots to grow in there, and there's tons of books on this topic. And we didn't bring a book on that, but if you ever wanted to look at one, uh, Cross-Cultural Servanthood is a really, really great book on this idea. All right, so we are going to get into talking about what are the different aspects of what we do at Cornerstone when it comes to, when it comes to global missions. So if you've got your page um, in your handout, I'm gonna show you the three different things that we kind of focus on when we think of global missions at Cornerstone. So the first one of these is church planting. Okay, for those of you who are filling fill the blank people, go ahead and grab that. And it's church planting is the first thing that we focus on. So we are, have a main focus of planting churches amongst university students globally in areas of low access to the gospel in over 100,000 university students. Okay, that's a mouthful. Lots of things that are happening there. So the, the reason that we focused on this as uh, with our church planting is because we're a university-focused church in a university network, it would make sense that the overflow of what we do when it comes to church planting would be with university students. And the main areas in the world that we focus on are places that we would consider to be 
unreached. Now, you guys remember from last week what unreached is. is in, unreached is any group that has less than 2% Christian within that. Now, that's a social, uh, the sociology construct. It's not like the Bible says, as soon as you have over 2% Christians in, your, in this culture, there's no longer a need to, for people to share the gospel. That's not true. There still <laughs> continues to be a need. But one of the things that we talked about specifically here is just this idea of low access to the gospel. So when people don't, in these countries don't have the opportunity to be able to hear it, uh, that, those are places that we want to go to. And then um, with over 100,000 university students, I was doing some updating on, I've got this list. Those of you guys who know me well know that I'm like really into spreadsheets a lot. And I've got this list of, uh, well, I actually added it to it this week, Shannon, I, don't, I haven't told you this, but I found that there are over, there's 604 cities in the world that have over a million people in them. Uh, that blew my mind. I couldn't believe like how many people there are in the world that are in cities. And they say that by, it's something like 2050, they're supposed to be, uh, I think it's either, I think it's like 66% of the world is supposed to be in cities. Um, and there's just tons and tons and tons. Uh, but what we've tried to focus on as a church is places that have over 100,000 university students in those, in those cities around the world. And so right now we know of about 200 cities that have over 100,000 university students in them. And I think that list is going to continue. So if you just imagine all these, all these cities around the world with many, many university students, that's where we've chosen to focus in. Now, are any of those things like, like the Bible is telling us, you have to go to cities that have university students and over 100,000? No, that's not what the Bible is telling us to do. But out of the overflow of who we are in our uniqueness and things like that, that's where we've chosen to be able to think about doing church planting. So the second global strategy that we have is church strengthening. And so this is to strengthen the developing church to deepen their strategy, networking, and theology. So there are quite a few places in the world that we would consider reached where they have more than 2% Christian. They do have access to the gospel, but you may have heard the term before that they're a mile wide and an inch deep in their theology. So what that means is that they've had the gospel, they've had people share it with them, but there's a high potential of, of people who could come in and preach like a different type of gospel. We see this a lot in sub-Saharan Africa where there is uh, like the prosperity gospel, if you've ever heard of that, or Marlon and I, we were I remember driving around Zambia with you, and it would be like Baptist Church, then it'd be like, is it Jehovah, or yeah, Jehovah's Witness, not Mormons, it's Jehovah's Witness, Baptist Church, Jehovah's Witness, you know, like there's a lot of bad theology that's out there as well. And so one of the things that we want to be a part of is just helping to be able to strengthen churches. And so we've done some pastoral training in various places around, around the world. Uh, we also contribute to organizations that do like indigenous pastor training. So let me tell you about one organization that we uh, work with. It's called Serve in Ministries, and I think like dollar for dollar, this is one of the best things that we do as a church. So they uh, basically what they do is they identify pastors in India who have become Christians, and they may have become Christians by like the physical healing, or they heard something on the radio, or whatever, and they just decided to start being pastors um, in these in these like small towns or whatever. And uh, and from from there, like. 
they don't have any training. They don't have any like understanding of really theology in general. They're just trying to do the best that they can with their Bibles in the place, which is awesome. But the value of being able to learn some uh, theology, be able to learn some like models of how to do church planting and things like that is really valuable. So for like basically 20 bucks a month, what we give towards these pastors is they have the opportunity to be able to be trained and networked with other pastors so that they can uh, learn about the gospel so they can learn about theology. And then they have to plant five churches in five years. And I'm like, when they first like pitched this idea to me, I'm like, that sounds impossible. Like, how are you going to do that? Well, it turns out like eight years later, every single one of these guys are doing it. Like they're all planting five churches. I mean, these churches aren't like gigantic or whatever. They're learning theology in a matter of five years and they're doing it on like 20 bucks a month. And that 20 bucks a month isn't what's actually supporting them as a pastor. That's just simply to help them be able to do uh, learn and to network together. And so we have a handful of ministries that we support just to help strengthen the church and help them to be on mission. Um, and in a little while, we're gonna have Marlon Rice come up here. Uh, I think it's probably gonna be like a half hour, Marlon would be my guess or so. Um, ha have him share a little bit about what we do in Zambia. But one of the key things that we do is to be able to do pastor training in that place. And uh, one of our former pastors, Jeff Dodge, leads that up a lot. And then the last thing that we focus on is community development. You may have heard this as like mercy and justice is another way to think of this, but when we talk about community development, we're gonna, I'm gonna give you some more ideas of why this is an important definition. But the basic idea of it is, is that we wanna see communities not just like come out of crisis, but actually be developed to become the type of communities that are self-sustaining, reproduce themselves, and uh, continue to see the gospel flourish in those places. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to mainly focus on church planting and community development and we're going to talk about like what are best practices for that and what are the ways that we decide um, who we're going to focus with and why we do those things so tonight's going to be a little bit of a mix of what does the bible say about these things but then also like why do we focus on them in particular as a church okay so i would love for you guys to take a look in your packet at acts 14 21 to 23. So go ahead and get that. If you don't have the packet out, you can get it out right now and we'll take a look. So I'm actually going to read, let's see, I think I had it written as 21, but we're going to start in verse uh, 19. And so what I want you guys to look at here is we're starting to talk about church planting. And this, I think this is one of like the best passages just on what is the overall idea of global missions? Like what's supposed to be happening? And so a little context to this, this is the first missionary Sorry, I keep grabbing the, I grab the bottom all the time. I don't know what my deal is with that. Um, apparently, if I do this, it doesn't work. Um, so what we're going to be looking at is uh, after Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And so if you know much about the book of Acts, they do, uh, Paul does three missionary journeys. And this is the first one. And in Acts chapter 13, they were sent out from the church at Antioch to go on this missionary journey. And so they, uh, they came along, and this is kind of towards the end of it. So um, can I have somebody read for us Acts 14, 19 to 23? Any volunteer for me? You don't even have to use the mic. Lucky you. Who's going to do it? You want to do it, Emily? Great. Thank you. That'd be great.
Thank you. Okay, so looking back through this, especially verses 21 to 23, um, I want you to pick out what are some of the things that are happening in their mission. So just obviously verse 19 and 20, you've got Paul getting dragged out of the city, beat up, and then like immediately the next day he goes on preaching the gospel. I'm like, holy cow, Paul, what the heck? You know, and the, it's not like he just got beat up. They thought he was dead. and then like the next day he's getting up and doing this so that's that's pretty incredible um okay so beyond that beyond the fact that paul's amazing what what are like three or four things that were very key to the ministry that they were doing as they went on the first missionary journey just looking from the text here they preached the gospel okay so that's the first thing that they did and that's as they're kind of swinging out on their first go around of this, that's what they were doing was preaching the gospel. What else do you see? They made disciples. Yes. Yes. And it was, and it's interesting that they made sure to distinguish that. So they preached the gospel and they made many disciples. So they made many followers of Christ through that time. Okay. What else happened? They appointed elders, yes, yes, they appointed elders at that time. What else happened? Yeah, they strengthened disciples also. So why did they talk about like making disciples and strengthening the disciples? What's, is there a difference there? Is there any reason why they talked about both those things? I think there's some reality here that when they went, they helped them come to know Jesus, with a lot, which allowed them the opportunity to follow Jesus. And then as they came back through, they strengthened the disciples. And when they strengthened them, this is a really interesting thing. Um, like when you guys think about helping people like follow Jesus and be a disciple, we're probably thinking about how do they read their Bible? How do they share the gospel with people? How do they have fellowship? Um, different things like that. The thing that they did to strengthen the disciples is to tell them it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> that's like, that's, that's not exactly in my like discipleship 101 manual, you know, or whatever, it's to tell people how to go through hardships. But that's a really interesting thing. And I think that's important for us to note, maybe outside of even just this goal, is that learning how to suffer is an important part of discipleship. And that's something that we see the example of from the book of book of Acts here. Okay, so we got preach the gospel, we got strengthened disciples, we got appointed elders in every church, and then they committed them to the Lord. So really, you've kind of got the example of what it looks like to basically go on mission. You share the gospel with people, you help them become to know Jesus, you strengthen them. You help them to be able to form church, and you help them to get elders. And then eventually you just commission them off to the Lord at that point. So it's a pretty simple formula, so to speak, of what it looks like to be a part of, of uh, doing missions around the world. So this is not something that we look at and we, we say, when we look at like all the things that you possibly could be doing within a church, and they simply just basically did those things. So this is a pretty key idea of when we think about what does it look like to do global church planting, we want to be thinking about what are the very simple, simple things that we need to be doing when we're doing church planting on a global basis. 
So um, let me do, let me jump to, I'm going to, I'm going to jump right into this part um, here on what a church is and what it isn't. So um, let me ask you guys this first. Did anybody have the opportunity to read the, the um, article on what, why church planting? Do you have that opportunity to do that? That's okay. You should definitely read it at some point if you do have that opportunity to be able to do it. Um, but in this, in that particular um, article, Tim Keller really goes through some awesome things on why we plant churches and what the goal of doing that is. But one of the verses that's really most helpful to me when I think of the idea of why do we plant churches, in Ephesians 3.10 it says, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. The church, the local church, is the way, it is the vehicle that God uses to be able to show his wisdom to the world. And so throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament, who were the letters written to, like all of Paul's epistles and stuff like this, who, what were all the, who were all the letters written to? This is a Sunday school answer, so somebody's got somebody's to gotta sh shoot it out to me. Who were they written to? The church, yes, good job, way to go. Set it up nicely there. So all of these things were written to the church, and what do we see Paul continuing to do throughout the book of, of Acts? He is planting churches in those places. He's strengthening disciples. He's appointing elders. And so when we think of the book of Acts, the overwhelming evidence, and really when you look at the whole of the New Testament, the overwhelming idea is that they are continuing to plant churches in those places. And so the idea of this is because God's multifaceted wisdom is made known through that local church. Now you've got kind of two definitions of church in the Bible. One of them is big C church. That's called the universal church. So that's like everybody that you know, you know, that's a Christian. So like the people that I know in China, in Zambia, in, you know, like Indonesia that are Christians, they're part of the universal church. And we can say, hey, those guys are all we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. But then there are local uh, establishments of that church. And that was what we saw in the New Testament was we saw the book of, we saw the church at Ephesus. We saw the church at Colossus. We saw the church at Galatia. All these individual churches are small groups of churches or a group of church in a city. Those were all, uh, you know, like individual manifestations of, of God in that place, body of Christ in that place. And it's through the church that God has continued continue to uh, bring the gospel to those different places. So I want to overview for you just a little bit of, of what Tim Keller said in, uh, in that article for you. This may make you want to go back and read it. Uh, so he says, why church and church planting? Uh, a vigor so what he says is a vigorous and continuous approach to church planting is the only way to guarantee an increased number of believers and is one of the best ways to renew the whole body of Christ. So this is kind of an interesting thought. It's like, okay, so when we think about, uh, you know, like places in the world that don't have the church or places that need a renewal of the church, sometimes we ask the question, okay, should we just go into those churches and try to like fix them? You know, should we help make dead churches alive again because they're already there? Or, you know, when we go to different places around the world, should we simply like partner with other churches? Should we start new churches? What's the reasons to do that? What's the reasons not to? And a lot of times when we think of like the w reasons to start new churches, it's 
the reality of church is that, like, it's organic. It's going to live and it's going to die. And that's true of local churches over time. There are very, very few local churches that have lasted from Christ until now. In fact, I don't really know which ones of those <laughs> there would be, that they, they are organic. And there's one, just a little side note here for Cornerstone Church, you know, like one of the things that I hope for our church is that just knowing historically that churches live and that they die, that while we're in this building, that we are using this building for the sake of the gospel. Because there's going to be a time where maybe this building becomes a theater someday. I don't know. Or maybe some other church takes it over and uses it. I don't know what that looks like. But the reality of history is that churches live and churches die. And some of the benefits of new churches coming in is that they bring new life they bring new ideas. They bring new opportunities for, uh, for people that come to know Jesus. And really one of the best ways to reach a community is to start a new church. It creates opportunities for leaders to be able to step in in those places. And especially in places where the gospel is unknown, it's a really important opportunity for more people to be able to hear the gospel of Christ in those places. So the church planning is incredibly important when we think about global missions, but also just the vitality of like Christianity as a whole. So what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about what a church is and what a church isn't. So if you want to flip over to this page that has the what a church is and what a church isn't, or what a church does, I should say, um, that's what we're going to look at here. So let me read this from the top. It says, The church comes into existence when people repent of their sin, place their faith in Jesus, and are baptized. Um, and agree to uh, unite together, self-identify as followers of Jesus in community with one another as a local expression of his universal body. Okay, so when we think of this, there is a difference between what a church is and what a church does. All right? So what a church is and what a church does. Now, I'm going to write up on the board for us just some basic ideas of what a church is, all right? So, and then we're going to talk about what a church does. All right, so when we think of what a church is, oh, I wrote that backwards, all right? We got gathered, um, gathered group of baptized believers. Okay. This is the first thing. So we're just talking about in the basic form, what is, what is a church? And then secondly, we've got on here, they are self-identifying as a local expression of the body. All right. Gotta finish writing this of the body. Okay. All right. So when I say that's what a church is, what kind of feelings does that give you? Does that feel too simplified? Does it feel like there should be more in that? If I just say you can go to a church that's a gathered group of baptized believers and self-identifies as a local expression of the body. Does that make you excited? Does that make you feel a little nervous? I think it probably makes you feel a little bit nervous because this seems overly simple of what that looks like. But when we think of what a church is in its simplicity, 
That's what the Bible tells us about it, is that it's when a group is gathered and they have decided that they are expression of a body of Christ. So one of the key things here is this idea of self-identifying. And so one of the things that we work a lot with our people overseas to be able to do is to teach people how to identify themselves as a body of believers in the local church, because we want them to be able to express that themselves. Okay, so... Oh, nice. Uh, so what we are trying to do when we think of overseas missions is we're trying to make sure that this is the simple way that we're thinking of church because you have all that indirect, indirect communication. You have guitars. You have synthesizers. You have all these things. You have air conditioning. You know, you have a pastor. You have theology classes, all these things. You have a lot of ideas about what a church does but what a church is in its simplicity are these ideas. Now, there are immature churches in the world, and there are mature churches, and there's a whole lot of them that are in between that. This idea of this is all that it is, this is probably an immature church, but it's still a church at that point. So now we got to think about the question of what does a church, what a church does? Let's see, what is a church? What is a church? Yeah, we're just going to what does it do? We'll go with that. There's kind of some weird ways to say that. Okay, so think about like, what does a church do? So it might be like evangelism, it might be small groups, all kinds of things like that. But when you think of like a healthy church, what are some of the things that come to mind in what they do? So just start like shouting some of those things out here. Discipleship, okay? All right, discipleship. Okay, what else? What do you think? Teaching. Yep. Baptism. Yep. Okay. What else? Communion. Yep. Communion would be one of those. Those are kind of the two sacraments that we think are pretty important from our vantage point is baptism and communion. So that'd be an important thing for the church to be able to do. What else? Community, yep. And that can take on a lot of different forms. That could be mid-sized things, that could be equipping classes, that could be small groups, whatever it is. But certainly from Acts 2, we get the idea that they were meeting together every day. What else? Worship, yes. And we'll go with we'll go with musical worship on that one. Musical worship. Okay. What else? Evangelism, okay. What's that? Global missions. Yep. There you go. That makes sense. Global missions. That's why I hired Shannon, because she said global missions. There we go. Other ideas. Just community missions. Okay. Yep. So like, like uh, we talk about that as like city ministries here. 
So like um, this could be to people who are impacted by poverty, that sort of idea. We talked about elders or leaders, like, like leadership development. Okay, so this list could keep going on and on. Now, imagine yourself, you're, in, you're a missionary and you are over in Indonesia. We got a group of people who are like this right now, actually. So there's about uh, 10 people from our church in a group of churches that are long-term over in Bandung, Indonesia right now. And what they are doing is they are learning Indonesian um, and they are going out on campuses and they're sharing the gospel with people who have no idea about Jesus. So here's a few things that they're facing. One, these people have a Muslim background and so they have to deconstruct what is their Muslim ideas about who God is, and then they need to begin to share the gospel with these people and help them to be able to come to know Jesus. So at some point, they're going to start talking about church, and it is going to take a long time to just get to the spot of where they help people to be able to understand what a church is in the first place. So if they, as they're doing that, start to say, okay, so these are all the things that a church has to do to become a healthy church, and they try to implement all these things right away. What, what kind of challenges do you think they would face? This is, this is a real question to you guys. What kind of challenges would that team face if they tried to add all the things that they're supposed to do to become a healthy church right off the bat as they're just gathering a group of people? What do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, so there's a huge question of like, what is discipleship in Indonesia? <laughs> what is teaching? That's a huge one. What is teaching? What is worship in Indonesia? So they got to figure out culturally, what are some of those things that they're, that they're trying to do? And they're also all coming in with what is their viewpoint of what that looks like too. So that's a huge, huge challenge that they're facing as they do that. Great, great answer there. What else are they thinking through? Mm-hmm. Yep. The limitations of language. Like, how much of this can they do in English? How much of this should they be doing in Indonesian? That's a huge challenge that they're facing through that time. Mm-hmm.
so there's a there's a slowness to this. There's a um, like a carefulness to how you're going about these things. So one of the things that you'll notice from missionaries often is if you're receiving a report letter for somebody, you might be like, man, what are you guys doing? Like, how long does it take to start a church or how long does it take to get to this place? Well, what they're doing, hopefully, is they are trying to, first of all, just help people come to know Jesus, help them to gather together, help them to be baptized as believers, and then identify as a body in Christ before they ever try to do all of these things. And there is some reality that in some of these cultures, they already have some of these like Western or cold sort of ideas of what all this stuff is supposed to look like. So they've started to think about things like, we gotta have a building or we gotta have somebody who's a, a pastor who's been theologically trained and all these different ideas. And so one of the things that we have to be very, very careful of when we think about doing church planting is not jumping too quickly to the do's, but helping people just to identify what those are, understand the ideas of each of these things, and grow in their capability to be able to do it. So if you do get the opportunity to be able to do church planting, or if you get the opportunity to coach somebody, or to just like give to somebody who's a missionary, understand where they're coming from in that, and encourage them to be slow, encourage them to walk through these things in a really like intentional way so that the gospel will go and will bring up fruit in that place in a way that's culturally relevant to that place. So um, I want to jump uh, forward a little bit. In in your packet, you guys have something, I guess not forward too much. On the next page here, uh, you've got some blanks that talk about that, uh, some values in church planting and some strategies that we would have in, in church planting. But before we do that, I want to do a quick little I'm just going to show you some differences of like what church planting looks like here in or like in a cross-cultural setting and then what it would look like uh, here oftentimes. So let's just think about some of these differences here. Um, so we've got like the starting members of a church who's involved in these things. Um, we're going to talk about the leader's role leader's role here, and we're going to talk about the outreach approach. Okay, outreach approach, and then um, how we develop leadership. Leaders, and then uh, multiplication. Okay, so when we think of each one of these ideas, from like, let's just say American, maybe cornerstone sort of way or whatever, from kind of the Western uh, way of doing things. When we start a church, do we start a church kind of from scratch? Do we have people involved? Like, so um, some of you guys who have uh, friends that are going on a church plant, like are, you, are those church plants starting, church plants starting from scratch or do they have some Christians already involved in those churches? They have some Christians already involved. Yep. So the starting members of a church oftentimes are Christians in those places. Okay. Now, the role of the leader in that church oftentimes, I'm going to answer this one for you, is like the lead pastor uh, or like the leadership team is kind of like the, the like main person. You know, so like they have the stage role. They're leading. They're doing all kinds of stuff like that. Um, the outreach approach oftentimes is more like attractional. 
So what I mean by this is uh, if you've been involved in Salt Company, uh, you probably invited people to your small group at some point, but one of the th cool things that you had is that the Salt Company kickoff, you were able to hold up a sign, and some of you made really cool signs, some of you made lame signs, it doesn't really matter. You got people into your group because of that, those signs, and oftentimes when you're sharing the gospel with people, you have the chance to be able to invite them to Salt Company or to Cornerstone because they can hear the message of the gospel. And that's awesome. I mean, what, what a cool thing that we have a place that we can invite people to. They hear the gospel and they become Christians. You know, like I would say four out of five times when I talked to a Salt Company student about how they came to know Jesus is because they went to Salt Company and they came to know Jesus. So that's, that's a pretty awesome thing that we have. Um, when we develop leaders, uh, we're, actually, I'm going to skip that one. That doesn't matter very much in this particular piece. And then multiplication of churches is pretty slow. It's more like elephants. You guys know how long a gestation period is for an elephant? Marlon, 20 months. It's a long time. It takes a long time to have an elephant baby. Yeah, Amer you know, like an American baby. A human baby is nine, <laughs> nine months in the womb. An elephant is 20. So like the multiplication of churches takes a long time. Now let's go over to like an Eastern or a more like cold culture uh, sort of place like that. Now keep in mind, oftentimes in these Eastern locations, there's also persecution that's a part of this. So not only are they dealing with like just becoming a Christian, um, you know, and all the cultural things that are going on with that. When they become a Christian, they've got this issue of like, they might get kicked out of their family they might be thrown in prison, all those sorts of things. Now, that's not true everywhere in the world, but a lot of places in the world, that's, that ends up being the case. So um, the starting members of a lot of these uh, churches is like, like two to three Christians, you know? Like, you don't have a whole lot of people when you're getting started. You know, if we're starting a church plan, I don't know that we've started with less than 50 Christians or so. So you've got quite a few less people. Um, when we think of like the role of the leader, it's a lot more like uh, it's a lot more collaborative in the way that that looks. So the group, they're not going to have somebody that's like full time. So the group is going to share a lot more of the burden of what it looks like to, to do that. Um, oftentimes their approach is a little bit more missional. So if you're going to a small group of people, most likely when you're talking in a small group, you're not going to have like a pastor who's teaching this like awesome sermon, especially if that pastor has been a Christian for like six months, <laughs> you know, or if that pastor has been a Christian for three years or something like that. They oftentimes aren't going to be able to like win tons of people to Christ because of that. So what becomes much more important is that every single person within the church really understands their role of going out and sharing the gospel with people and not simply just to invite them to a group, but to actually like share and help them understand the gospel. And then oftentimes the, the way that the multiplication happens in this area of the world is it's more like rabbits. Marlon, what's the gestational period of a rabbit? Do you know that? <laughs> it's pretty fast. It's something like eight weeks or something, or something really fast like that. And so oftentimes in these groups, in these areas of the world, what you're trying to do is you're trying to create churches that will fairly quickly multiply themselves because they're small. 
in their nature. And so for them to be able to reach the world, they're going to reproduce themselves really quickly um, as well. And a lot of this is just due to the reality of that there is a lot of persecution in these areas of the world. And so we just really need to be able to see those churches multiplied quickly. And we need to do that in a way that, um, you know, every believer has the opportunity to know that they're a part of sharing the gospel with others. So here's some values that we kind of think of. And so if you're the fill in the blank person, here's the, here's the time that you're going to shine right here for you. And so, um, the, the first part here is the focus of church planting cross-culturally needs to be especially focused on creating new life, sowing broadly the gospel. So that first one there is new life. So when we think of what do our missionaries do cross-culturally in these places where it's hard to share, where it's hard for people to receive, the first thing that they're doing is they're just sharing the gospel a lot with a lot of different people. If you've been on a summer trip, you know that your job is basically just to share the gospel with as many people as possible. All right, the second one here is reproducibility. So what is taught or practiced must be something that nationals can quickly turn around and do for others. So here's a practical question or example with this is when you think about like, how do, what do you do for music in a place? Well, let me, let me ask you guys this, like, okay, so you're in this place and you want to be able to do worship. What do you have to think about or what do you have to consider before you choose what instrument to use or what songs to play? What are, what are some things that you need to consider in light of trying to help it be like culturally relevant to those people, but also reproducible? What are some things that come to mind for you, you think? So what's popular locally? So you got to learn some of those, those, uh, those things and what are some of those sounds that they might, that they might have. That's important. What else? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, so one, do I know how to play those? And then two, if I want this church to multiply, does that culture actually have a, like instruments in their culture? Do they have people that can play them on a regular basis? So we have a ton of people that have taken piano lessons around here. You know, a lot of people know how to play guitar. Those are kind of a dime a dozen around here. But there's also a lot of places in the world where people don't have the opportunity to play instruments at all. So you might have to ask the question in the first place, do we even want to include instruments in what we're doing within church simply because it might throw the idea of something that they're not able to reproduce. So, you know, we, we come around with guitars and things like that. And we do that a lot cross-culturally because it's not super hard to learn the guitar, but even that sometimes is a little bit much. So one of the things that we do just in IFC in particular is they just watch YouTube videos and sing along with them. And that sounds kind of lame and it kind of is a little bit lame <laughs> to be honest with you, but it's very reproducible because people can take that back to China, to Indonesia, other places and be able to follow along with that. Um, the third one here is relevancy. Um, so what's being taught needs to be super, super important and very base level. So, you know, getting off on a lot of conversations about Calvinism versus Arminianism might not be the most important thing to talk about in the early stages. Um, that's what a church does, not what a church is. And so <laughs> we want to eventually get to those places. But in the first little bit, that may not be the most important piece of it. Uh, the fourth value here is the idea of urgency, too. Um, 
one of the things that you feel when you're walking around in a cross-cultural place is just how lost everybody is. And so there's a sense of urgency when you're walking down the street and you know that maybe like one out of 100 people know who Jesus is. The hope would be that there'd be a high value of urgency in there. Okay, and then we're going to go on to strategies here next. So what are the things that you would want to, um, to be doing? We've talked about some of these things here so far. So basic church is the first one there. So keep church simple. Ask questions rather than giving commands to nationals. So one of the key things is, again, in this slow process, is you have to work with nationals to say, I want them to discover these things out of the scripture rather than the Western person telling them what to do. And so you learn to ask a lot of questions. Um, the second one here, it's a weird word, but the idea of shadow pastoring. So there's, there's a lot of challenges when Western people come in and try to start church by themselves. And part of the reason why we teach all of our missionaries to learn language is because we want them to be able to teach and preach in the language of the people, because that's the heart language of them. That's what they're thinking of, like when they're sleeping, they're dreaming, when they're, they have their thoughts. They're not thinking in English most of the time in those ways. And so we try to teach our missionaries to really think about like how they can, um, you know, like be able to bring the gospel in their own language and empower those to lead rather than lead themselves. Uh, the third one here is this idea of contextualization. So making teaching and the practice relevant to their context. Um, there's a, there's this idea of like, um, you know, what was the, what was the scripture meant to be like in the old, like when it was written and then how does it translate to us today? Um, that's what we're trying to do for them also. There's a way that the scripture translates to us here at Cornerstone and there's a way that it that it translates for people overseas. That's contextualizing, figuring out how the scripture and what it means in its truth affects that culture. And then the final one here is multiple streams. And so some of the strategies that we try to work with is to think about like how we can invest in multiple relationships with people rather than just in one. So oftentimes what happens with a missionary going overseas is they have like one really awesome relationship and then they find out that that person only wanted to talk to them because they spoke English. It's like, ah, nuts. So one of the things that you really try to work on when you're a missionary overseas is being able to, to work in multiple, um, multiple groups of people. And then the last one on here is pastors from within. So most of the time when, when we're looking at raising up leaders, we're really looking at, we don't just like go out and hire somebody because there aren't other Christians to go hire in these unreached places. We want to think about what does it look like to just find people within the culture that we can help them to become pastors. So church planting is a really challenging thing to be able to do um, cross-culturally, but it's, it really is the hope of these people. And so it's a hard thing, but it's an awesome thing to be able to endeavor on. And everything that we do when we think of doing cross-cultural missions centers around this idea of planting churches in these cross-cultural areas. So um, I wanted to uh, bring my friend Marlon Rice here uh, to be able to talk about what's happening in Zambia. So Marlon has been a part of our work in Zambia for 12 years. Does that sound right? Since, two, since 2008. 2008, so 14, so a little bit longer than that. And uh, uh, Marlon is one of the most fun people to travel with. So if you ever want to go to Zambia, I'm not saying that everybody can just go, but he uh, he gets in like 
Africa mode or something, and it's pretty hilarious. But uh, but Marlon has been a really great example of what it looks like to care about a particular place while still living in America. And I think this is a really cool um, example that I hope some of you will be able to take both in your life here at Cornerstone, but then um, maybe something that you take to your churches in the future. And so I uh, just wanted to give Marlon uh, uh, some minutes to talk about what has been happening in Zambia and then kind of how he got involved uh, in that as well. So go ahead. Thank you, Mike. So Mike has given me eight minutes, so I'm gonna talk fast, okay? So <laughs> let me show you. You can take as long as you want, it's fine. <laughs> I know you've got other things to do, but uh, let me show you where Zambia is. It's uh, third country from the bottom right here, okay? It's the one that's sort of shaped like an arm that's bent up in a muscle, kind of like this, if you use your imagination. It's about the size of Texas. Well, in 2008, I, I, I used to work at the, at the university. I was an entomologist, and I got tired of working there, and so I interviewed with Monsanto in St. Louis. Some of you may have heard of Monsanto. They asked me the question there, Marlon, whenever you finish your career, what do you want to leave as a legacy? Well, my wife and I have been talking about getting involved with orphans, particularly orphans in Africa. So I laid that on the table as my legacy. I get home, three days later, Jeff Dodge calls me up. Jeff Dodge is a former pastor. He says, hey, Marlon, I want to have lunch with you. So we have lunch, and he says, we're thinking of in Africa. Would you like to join us? So what I said I wanted to leave as a legacy, three days later, God laid it on the table for me to pursue if I wanted to, okay? Monsanto also offered me the job, which was gonna be a lot more money. So I had to decide, do I take the money or do I take the opportunity to work with orphans? Well, here I am and I'm working with orphans, okay? So that's the short story. Uh, Elena, next please. So let me give you a little overview of what we do in Zambia. There's actually a, a physical facility there. It was built by a couple of guys here, Randy Brecky, who takes care of the some of you may know him, and also Zach Ludwig. And this was started in 2009. And so this facility really has two purposes. One is orphan care. Now the orphans don't live there. It's kind of like foster care. They live in the village with a grandmother or a sister or other family members. And then also we do pastor training and community development. I'm the community development sort of guy, okay? So we've got 55 orphans here, and we have to feed them. And that's what Jeff asked me to do. How are we going to feed these kids? Next, please. So we have this facility, and they're in school. Now, this picture was taken a number of years ago. I took some kids from, uh, kids, guys from farmhouse over uh, during Christmas break, and we planted some fruit trees. But these are some of the children that are at, that are at the Hope Center, uh, and they range from second grade up through 12th grade. And they come in once a day for a meal, we feed them, they get Bible study, and then they uh, go to school, and then they go stay back home with grandma at night, and they repeat that cycle every school day. Next, please. And they're kids just like you were when you were growing up. You know, they love to have fun, but they're disadvantaged. They're severely disadvantaged. Oftentimes, both parents are dead, or maybe one parent has died, and the other one is, doesn't, can't work, doesn't work, has too many kids. And so uh, we work with local churches there in this one town to help provide for those orphans. Next, please. So one of the things I did was uh, Jeff says, okay, we've got to figure out how to feed these kids. So there's been a number of gardeners there. This is our current gardener. His name is Omega, as in Alpha and Omega, okay? Omega is his name. And he's a very capable individual. This is uh, obviously cabbage, and he's planting cabbage. And so I've done some training over the years, but this guy's very uh, independent, very skilled, 
and does a great job in growing vegetables for the children, but they also sell them in the market because they grow so many that they can't eat them all. Next, please. And so I am, a, I am the best banana grower at Cornerstone Church. So if anybody asks you what my skill set is, it's growing bananas. And what you do is you, you take a banana plant, you put it in the ground, you water it, and you wait 18 months. And that's all there is to it. It's like growing weeds, but uh, not yet. Back up. Thank you. Yeah. So this is the largest bunch we've ever grown, 209 bananas, and they're heavy. But uh, the point being is that this is a, uh, a, a tropical area. We can grow anything. We can grow it abundantly. And God has really blessed this piece of ground. And I, I don't take a lot of credit uh, for what we've done there other than to bring ideas to the Hope Center, and we build on those ideas and work together. And really, it's a relationship more than anything. It's not so much about a project, but it's, I know these guys personally. This is Navas Kalunga. And Mike said earlier that there were three primary goals of missions at Cornerstone. What was the first goal? I can't hear you. Church planning, right? Second was church strengthening. Third was community development. So church planning, this is Navas Kalunga. This is the guy that actually got us involved in Zambia. He has planted over 380 churches, okay? Now these are not Cornerstone style churches. These are little bush churches scattered throughout the countryside but 380 churches, and then, next please. Oh, the other thing I do is I work with, we bring in pastors, we bring in about 20 pastors over a three-year period, four times a year over a three-year period through sort of a cornerstone school of theology. And Jeff Dodge trains them during one of those sessions each year. While those pastors are there, I train them in agricultural development because everybody grows corn. It's a staple, okay? Everybody grows corn. Even the pastors grow corn. Well, they don't do it very well. Here's an example of a cornfield in Zambia where the rows are nine feet apart, okay? Nine feet apart. Next, please. So what we do is, is we give them training. And it's very simple training. We put the training, uh, it, it only takes about two hours. We put all the instructions on a picture sheet. We help buy fertilizer and better seed for them, and they go through a three-year training program. So when Jeff is training them in the gospel, I'm training them in agriculture. And so what we do is we end up with a field that looks like this. It looks just like Iowa. And we've been able, I've got data. We've been able to double and occasionally triple their yields by doing this. So when these pastors take this technology back to their church, Everybody in their church plants corn. You know, there's a lot of orphans, a lot of kids that need to be fed. So not only do they have a more reliable food supply, but also they have extra income to put the kids in school because they have to pay to go to school in Zambia. It's not a free education. Next, please. And this is at the Hope Center. This is uh, one of the harvest of the corn uh, from one particular year. Next, please. And so there's a group of uh, the caregivers that I train. Now, most of them don't speak English, so I have to work through an interpreter. But uh, again, the message is communicated. In fact, the picture sheet that I give them has uh, instructions on it in both English and Bemba. Bemba is the local language, so they can take that with them as a reference as they go forward and plant their corn. Next, please. And then here's Jeff on the uh, right-hand side with a group of pastors. And again, they come in four times a year over a three-year period. And uh, they go through a Cornerstone School of Theology and actually we help strengthen, that's that church strengthening Mike talked about after novice plants and churches, we help strengthen the church so that these pastors get better training. We give, them, we give them a new study Bible when they graduate. We give them literature that's written by African pastors. And so they go away with some good resources to help 
build a church. Next, please. And so I leave you with this. You know, I, I only go to Africa once, sometimes twice a year. And I usually go for two weeks. And somebody said, and it's, you know, it, there's, it's, it's a, I, would, I never would have picked Zambia on a map, okay? I didn't pick Zambia. God picked Zambia and put me there, okay? It's a little backwater place. It would be difficult to find on the map where we go. In fact, a couple of the villages where we go aren't, aren't even on the map. They don't have names on the map. But yet, you know, one of the things that, that really encourages, encourages me about what I do is Jesus said in, in Matthew 25, he says at the end, as we're all standing before him, he'll shep, separate the sheep from the goats, the, the goats on the left and the sheep on the right, and the sheep will say, uh, what's the question he asked? He said, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, why didn't, why, didn't you take, why didn't you take care of those that are tired and hungry and thirsty and that sort of thing? And, uh, and, and the sheep will say, when did we do that? And Jesus will say, whenever you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. Whenever you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And that's really what motivates me in this community development aspect because what I'm doing is helping to feed children, okay? That's, that's the bottom line. And so I partner with Mike and Cornerstone and Jeff, who's in Veritas in Iowa City, to really glorify Christ by making life a little bit better for these kids in these churches in rural areas. So, Marla, I'm going to ask you some questions because uh, you brought up some questions as you were talking and stuff. So, so you're... Um so how many trips have you made to Zambia now? 19. 19 trips to Zambia. So how long are those flights to Zambia? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we fly from Des Moines, to jo Des Moines to Atlanta. Atlanta to Johannesburg was in South Africa. So when I walk on the plane, I, I set my stopwatch on my phone. Because you're on the plane, okay? Walk on the plane. When I walk off the plane, the longest it's ever been is 19 hours and 56 minutes. Yeah, it's it's usually about 17, but sometimes it's longer. So yeah. 20 has been the longest. So that's that's a lot of trips. So it's coming up on cool. coming up on 20 here pretty soon. And you have a have had a normal job. You're now retired, um, which is which is fun for you to be able to do that. But Marlon has done this in the midst of having a job, using your vacation time, all those sorts of things. Okay, so when you go and you do things with Omega, with Marjorie, with some of the with uh, Novice and some of those others, what are some you know, challenges that you run into and what are, you know, you heard us talking about some of these cultural things we try to do in church planning. What are some of the things that you're thinking of as you're trying to help the people in Teta, Kamena and Serenje and all those places? I think uh, communication is a big thing. So I mentioned earlier, we, we really try to focus on relationships, not us going and doing something for Zambians, but going, partnering with the Zambians to accomplish something. And so communication, I think, is a big thing because I go there with ideas of what I want to do. We lay the ideas out, and they go, yeah, maybe we need to do it a little bit differently. And so it's really a learning together, a partnering together. And so it's not like I go there as the, as the person who has all the answers. I mean, right now, just this past week, uh, one, another one of the things I do is facilitate purchase of medicine. Sometimes I'll, I'll take a whole tote I go to Sam's Club and buy, you know, a case of Tylenol and take it over, uh, and, and other things. But we just facilitated, Mike and I facilitated, sending money over to Zambia for four of these churches that are real churches, because uh, there's a there's a hospital where the Hope Center is located. When we were there in uh, last December, that hospital had no medicine, no hydrogen peroxide, 
no Tylenol, no antibiotics, nothing. And so what we took over was the only in those rural communities. And that was December. Now they've finished what we gave them. And so we sent somebody over to have medicine bought in the capital and then shipped up about, about 260 miles shipped up to these rural churches. So it's another way of, of loving the least of these through the name of Jesus. Now, when you were doing those agricultural projects um, in Teta and Kamena, which are two of the villages uh, around there, um, how did you... How did you how did you do that in a way that it wasn't just like giving it all away to them or whatever? And how did they have involvement in that process? Great question. So when we first started, we were on the welfare program, <laughs> whereby the churches said, "Okay, we've got a hundred orphans. Can you help feed them?" And so what we did was we just we sent money over and bought sacks of cornmeal, gallon of cooking oil, and uh, some dried fish. And said, "Okay, give it to the hundred orphans." Well, we read a book called "When Helping Hurts." And basically what the book said was, if you're, not, if you're not improving people's condition by partnering with them and training them, if you're just giving stuff away, then they have no vested interest in improving their own life. So I sat down with the pastors and said, hey, we're spending $100 per kid just buying corn. What if we took the same money and invested it in fertilizer and hybrid seed and you plant your own? And they said, it's a great idea. In fact, they wanted to share that idea with me, but there was that hesitation, that cultural difference where they thought they would be rude if they proposed that idea to me, but they eventually got around to it. And, and so what we did was we went in each of those villages, we had a three-year program where it was cost share. In other words, no longer was it free, but the first year we paid 75% of the cost of the seed and fertilizer. They had to pay 25%. The next year is 50-50, and then the third year is flipped to 25, 35%. And then we stepped away and started working with other villages. So it, and, and everybody learned, okay? And uh, we got to the point where, yeah, agricultural uh, production was improved. And yeah, and now you can, like, go see on the Zambian countryside some, you know, like, corn that's in rows, and you can trace it back to, to Marlon's work. So it's kind of yeah, fun to be fun. able to see. You, driving 25 <laughs> miles down the road, and... And we used to give them a string, a 150-foot string, so they could make straight rows, okay? <laughs> and you'll see guys 25 miles away with strings out in the field now. I don't know who they are, but they've picked up that technology, that string technology. Yeah, using it. and one of the things Marlon had to do, because he was just like, well, how are you going to mark these things? So you took pop, the like the old pop tops or whatever yeah, off bobble of cap. uh, bobble caps, yeah, and just like that was, you put them around there, and that's where you planted the seed. markers yeah. on the string, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Well, good. Well, Marlon, you can share for a long time. I'm going to kick you off right Thank now, you. but right. I do really appreciate what you've done. And I, you know, if you guys ever wanted to hear more from Marlon, he'd be, he'd love to, to share, but this is a great example of um, using the things that God has given you and then doing it in uh, like principled sort of way that has an effect on a whole like region of the world. And so, yeah, thanks for, thanks for being an example of that, Marlon. I know the joy for you is higher than it is for anybody else. So that's fun to see as yeah. well, but that's great. All I'll right. tell you what, I go to first service on Sunday morning. I'm usually out in the lobby, out in the foyer or so, and I'm taller than most people, so, <laughs> except for Paul Tweet yeah. and Brent Haverkamp. I'm third tallest here. Uh, if you ever want to talk to me, just come out to me, okay? And say, hey, I want, I want to hear more about Zambia, and I'll be glad to spend some time talking to you, okay? Thank you. Great. Thanks, Thanks Marlon. Marlon. Yeah, appreciate that. Okay, so if you, yeah, good deal. That's good. That's fun.
Okay, so if you want to uh, take a look at the community development page, uh, I'm going to read a few things, and we're going to look at a video here in just a second after I get done reading this psalm. Uh, but Psalm 146, 5 to 9 said, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who had made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind and the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Um, sometimes when we talk about uh, like, doing missions or outreach or those sorts of ideas, um, we want to primarily be talking about what is church planting. But there is a reality in this world, and Shannon shared this last week, of just our world is very broken. And one of the things that we can do as Christians is to be able to love the physical needs of people. Now, the hope would be that this would this would flow out of the life of the church. So you heard Marlon talk about that he's working with the pastors uh, who are, those are the ones who are taking in the orphans to help the church be able to meet the needs of their community. And so one of the key things that we try to do as much as possible is work through the church to be able to help them to do these needs. So again, when we think about what a church is and what it does, like this doesn't fall on what the church is, but it is one of the key things that a church does is to look out for mercy and justice and look out for the needs of the oppressed and the fatherless. But there are ways to do that that are really helpful, and there are ways to do that that are really harmful. So we're going to look at a video here that talks a little bit about some of the ways that it's helpful and some of the ways that it is harmful. So, uh, Lana, you can just play that until it gets to 555, I think is what it is. So. have my eyes open to this through a friendship with Jean. And Jean was a friend in Rwanda, and he told me the story that after the Rwandan genocide, that he had a church from Atlanta that started sending over eggs and ended up just distributing eggs in his small community outside of Kigali. And this seems like a great thing to do, right? The church wanted to help after the genocide. But Jono, a few years before, had started a small egg business himself. He put this investment in all the materials that he needed to start this egg business. His business was starting to grow, it was starting to take off, and then all of a sudden, in one summer, there become this surplus of eggs that were flooding the market in his area. And so this desire that the church had to really take care of a need, it did take care of a need, but the problem is that it put Jono out of business. He ended up selling his hens, and then the next year the church decided to focus its attention to somewhere else in the world. Jana was out of business. No one else was there providing eggs. And so they had to bring the eggs in from another community. So this desire to help in that community, uh, according to Jano, actually had a long-term negative impact on that community. When I was growing up, we didn't have secondhand clothing from Europe and the US and Canada in Kenya. My mother took me to a store and she bought me a beautiful t-shirt that said made in Kenya, Kenya cotton. Today, I would struggle to find a t-shirt like that for my daughter. Why? Because the influx of secondhand clothing that makes its way here from Europe and the US and Canada has negatively impacted on our textile industry in Kenya. 
massive layoffs in the 80s and the 90s, factories that shut down. What happened to our cotton farms? When I was growing up in this country, we could have bought cotton in varieties and types in, that are incomparable. But that's all gone because of the impact, the negative impact of the apparel imports at a second-hand level. I recall very well when I first heard the news reports of the Haitian earthquake. The Republic of Haiti has been hit by a mass. So super sad to hear, isn't it? That like there are people in these places that have, you know, they bought what they needed to, to be able to have eggs in their place. They had t-shirts, they had cotton, they had all those things. And then because of good intentioned, well-intentioned people here in the US that actually hurt what they were doing in those places. Now here's the challenge of trying to help people. It is really easy to undermine people and it's really easy to give people things that they don't actually need. You know, you heard Marlon talk about the idea that the, the folks in Zambia were gonna share the same idea that he had, but they were too afraid or they were maybe too timid to share what's going on. Thankfully, Marlon asked them <laughs> and they were able to respond in that way. And so uh, some of the key things that we want to be talking about when we think of community development within places is we want to restore relationships. So you'll see on your sheet that it says there's four relationships to be restored. And I'm gonna read those off for you. Those four relationships that are to be restored are between God, self, creation, and people. Okay, so I'll read those again. God, self, creation, and people. So when we think of the world that we're in right now, uh, we know that there's brokenness with God, and that leads to ourselves being on a path of fallenness within our life. And so the gospel in the first place restores our relationship with God and it restores our lives. But beyond that, it actually helps us in other ways too in life. It restores, um, there's the reality of like creation is going to be restored at some point. Now we can't imagine that in this world, we're actually going to experience where creation is totally restored. But in light of the fact that we're, we were called to rule the earth and subdue it, we can do good things with creation. We can work on climate change. We can work on like trying to help farming become a better practices, all those sorts of things. Those are things that we can do in this world. But then also relationships with other people. The gospel gives us the opportunity to have our relationships restored with others. And so when we think about helping a place, especially that is struggling like a Zambia or other impacted by poverty places, we're thinking of all four of these relationships. Uh, now, if you go back to the kind of the first bullet point up there, it says poverty is at its core, not a poverty of materials, but a poverty of relationships. So when you talk with somebody who has, um, especially somebody who's been impacted by poverty in America, but definitely if you do around the world as well, you'll find that those people, their main needs in their life are not actually the materials that they have. It's that they want real relationships. It's that they want a job. It's that they want the opportunity to contribute. It's that they want relationship with God. 
more than they want materials. We know that in our country, we are one of the most unhappy countries in the world. And it might be because of our work towards having material things. And you go to these places like Africa and other places like that, that are really struggling. And you find out that actually these people are fairly happy, but they would love to have some of the material things that we have. They just don't need it as much as we would expect. So most of the time when uh, you go to a place uh, around the world, do a mission trip somewhere, um, one of the things that tends to be the main idea of what, what is happening there is giving people materials, building something for people, um, bringing something down with, with you, whatever that might look like. Now, what are the challenges that come up when it's like that? Well, there's the question of, is that actually something that the people need? Is the thing that you're bringing something that they have asked for in the first place? And are, is there something else in the relationships that might actually be more helpful for those people? Um, and then there's also this idea, too, of development and relief. So I want to get a little bit of some participation here with this one. So um, relief and development are two different ideas of being able to work with communities that have been impacted by poverty, that have some of these challenges with uh, material sorts of ideas and stuff like that. So uh, when you see the words relief and development, like what pops into your head? How do you define those different ideas of relief and development? We think. What's re let's go with relief first. What's relief? What do you think of it? Lack of water, okay, yeah. So like one example of that would be lack of, of water, yep. Okay. You could give like examples or you could give like definitions of it too. What else do you think of when you think? Sure, yeah, so it's shorter. Um, and what's, and you talked, you said the word sustaining. What do you mean by, what do you mean by that? Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's there's often a crisis that's going on, and you're just trying to like honestly keep people alive. <laughs> I mean, there I know that kind of seems crazy or scary or whatever, but when you think about like right now in Ukraine, we're seeing a humanitarian crisis where people are around the country of Ukraine are having to flee. We're entering into like the largest humanitarian crisis that we've seen since World War II, most likely, um, because of Ukraine, and or because of what's happening in Ukraine. And so what is needed for these people at this time is they need a place to stay. They need food, they need shelter, they need some of those basic ideas of what life is. And so relief is really centered around uh, basic ideas. I should have said instead of alive, like survival is probably more of what we're thinking here, is just like how do we help people really survive in in these places now when we think more about development what are what are some of the ideas of of development that you can think of in this so relief is kind of the opposite of development so think along those lines what do you think of when you think of development in a place yeah mm -hmm. yep so uh looking for causes Yep, that's really good, Johnny. Yeah, causes of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe something over here with relief is that it's like symptoms, is what you were saying. So fixing symptoms. Okay. 
more involved? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes is the answer to that question or to that point. It's very involved. What what do you mean by involved exactly? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you can like send money for relief or stuff like that. There's a lot of agencies that are in that. Development oftentimes takes a lot more of like, it's more personal, maybe I'll add to that idea, is it's gotta be a lot more personal in the way that it's, that it's done. What else pops into your mind? Yeah, a lot of training, yep. And I would say that's both training for the goer and the receiver. Too. So there's like, like the goer needs some training to know what they're doing, but then also like the person who is involved needs training to be able to do their the things that they're doing. Anything else for development you can think of? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the dollars, you know when you guys see those dollar signs next to restaurants or whatever and stuff, like how much a restaurant's gonna cost? We'll say that development is like the $5, you know, the $5 signs and relief might be like the $2 signs for Google or whatever, those things. So yes, it's gonna take a lot more funds to be able to do development. Mm-hmm, yep, yes, exactly. Yep, it's self-sustaining. Okay, so relief has its place. Super important when there's an earthquake, when there's a flood, when there's a disaster, when there's famine, um, all those, when people are dying, there are great reasons to do that. Like when there's the, you know, when there's a, a pandemic, it's really important for vaccines to get to places <laughs> that would never be able to develop vaccines. That's super important in relief. Development is thinking much more along the lines of how do we help people to be able to do this themselves? So the third line on here, or let's see, I don't know if I ever said the second one, but the, the second one there is uh, development, not relief based. And the third one is asset, not relief based. I think it's relief or not needs based. That's what I meant to say. Asset, not needs based. So one of the key things within development is that we're trying to ask the questions of the people themselves, what is it that you need? So oftentimes in relief or in development that's not done very well, is we will come in with all of our ideas of what we need to do, of what the needs are, and we'll do those, rather than asking the question, was it, what is it that you actually need? Because when we do that, we're saying that their poverty is materialistic, but when we ask them, we actually find out that most of their poverty is actually within relationships. It's within relationship with people, creation, self, or God. And those are the ways that, those are the things that we wanna restore. And so their poverty, yes, it's, there's in relationship to creation at times, but when we decide what that is, that's a problem. But when they understand and they say, hey, this is actually, what we need, then, then it works out really well. So what are the ways that, okay, so let's just say that we try to take like relief ideas and we put them on a development situation. So let's say like, 
like in relief, we're thinking we're just going to get a whole bunch of dollars over there. We're going to, um, you know, like basically we know what they need, all that sort of stuff. And we're going to do that in a development area. So there's lots of problems with that because when people are not in survival mode, what they actually need at that time is they need development. They need uh, stuff that focuses on the underlying causes. They need people who are very involved in the process. They need it to be personal, and they need, they need training in that process. Uh, they might need a lot of dollars. Sometimes they don't, and they need to have it in a self-sustaining way. So when you're in a development situation, and you just come along with like dollars and free handouts and all kinds of stuff like that to develop people, what happens, or people in the development mode, what happens is they start to become dependent on those things. What happens also is that their dignity is lessened. Like they don't feel like they actually have the ability to do these things, so they become dependent on those things, on the rice that's come over, on the eggs that have come over, on the, the like secondhand t-shirts and stuff like that. So they don't work, they don't find dignity, they don't find entrepreneurship in trying to make those needs happen. And so some of the better principles for like people who are in development are things like microfinance, where you give small loans to people to help them to be able to create businesses, where you ask them questions like, hey, what do you actually need and how can we help you to be able to find those needs? And when there's ongoing relationship with people in those times. So when you heard about what Marlon did, he's on his 19th, gonna be his 20th trip here pretty soon. He asked them what they needed. Uh, he helped them to be able to figure out, hey, how much money can you give to this so you can own some of it? Guys, what they, what's been done in Zambia, we could have like, you know, with our global budget every year, totally taken care of it all the time. And there would be tons of orphans that are like happy and healthy or whatever in those times. But the Zambian people would never have owned a lot of what's going on. And we still have a lot of work to do in all those things. We haven't done it perfectly. But what Marlon has done in many of these places is tried to work with these principles. And actually some of the things that we've seen have helped them to sustain really well. Um, the final blank on there is that it's done by the established church. And so one of the key things that we want to try to do is actually involve the established church in the process of community development. Um, let me just pause for a second and ask if there's any questions that you guys have on relief and development, because there's a whole lot of stuff that we could go into on this. And I made it I got it in 25 minutes. Last time we did this, I did it in 10. <laughs> so it was really, really short. Um, but any just like questions that pop in your head about questions of like relief and development as we've gone through. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, there's this book called When Helping Hurts. It'd be a great one to read at some point. But one th thing that'd be a good challenge for you all to think, especially if you've got, uh, you know, roles in any sort of biology or agriculture or things like that would be, what would it look like for me to leverage those skills to be able to help people who have been impacted by poverty? So it'd be fun to do. All right, so we are on the last leg of our time together here. We got a half hour left, and we're gonna talk about our roles in global missions. So this is gonna be a hard pivot for us here. So you guys can shake it out just a little bit. We're almost to the finish of this. And, uh, but we wanna kind of bring this home for you guys. So what we're thinking about now is we have talked about like what's the biblical basis for global missions we've learned that god has a heart for all nations and he wants people to be involved in that process and when he says go and make disciples of all nations um, there's the reality that some of you will go 
cross-culturally. Some of you will go live other places, but that doesn't mean that if you don't do that, that you get a pass, you know, in this. This idea of go and make disciples of all nations is something that we hope to see everybody in Cornerstone have some way, shape, or form that they're involved in that. And we hope that that would involve some of you actually going long-term, but Shannon and I want to give you guys some ideas of what it looks like to do this here in America and some like very different ways that this can happen kind of in whatever you know general state that you're in so Shannon's bringing over some prayer cards so obviously we're going to be talking about prayer as we get started but um, there's six of these on here that we're going to talk about so the first one that we're going to talk about is welcoming people from the nations and so we have this ministry here at Cornerstone it's called International Friendship Connection is anybody in here involved in International Friendship Connection okay Emily that's great and so basically what International Friendship Connection is, is there's about 60 or so Cornerstone members that are involved each week in being able to get to know international students around uh, Ames, Iowa, and inviting them into their homes for family groups. And this is a really, like, one of the most helpful ministries that we have, I think, towards the nations. And if you know much about Iowa State, Iowa State has a lot of international students at Iowa State. Um, In fact, it's around 12% of the campus is international students. And those come from 120 different countries and represent a great portion of the unreached people groups within the world. And um, there are opportunities within IFC, whether you want it to be like a conversational English partner, which is basically like getting paired up with somebody and just talking English with them. That's like one of the best ways to just get started on like loving uh, the world and loving the nations. Another thing you can do is like, if you if you just meet somebody in Walmart or someplace around and they don't look American or whatever, like just start talking to them and find out where they're from. And if they're from a different country, they will love the chance to be able to talk to you. Now, I've had a lot of people say like, well, what if I get it wrong? What if they actually are American and stuff? Don't, don't like lead with, you know, like, are you from a different country or something like that? Like, you know, you can talk just like, hey, where are you from and stuff. And you can tell pretty quickly if somebody's from a different country. And you know, people who come from a different country love to get to know people of that country. In fact, there's this crazy stat that um, like 80% of international students that come to America never set foot in the home of an American person. And when I've been overseas, I mean, gosh, just about everywhere that I've gone, (laughs) I've gone to like 20 countries and almost like every single one of those, I've set foot in somebody's home during that time. Um, And so it's a huge just cultural tragedy that we're not like welcoming these people into our our homes and stuff. But it's also an opportunity for us to really love and to serve internationals that are here in America. So if you want any more info on that, there is the uh, link on there that's global.cornerstonelife.com slash welcome. And you can get to know a little bit more about that. Do you want to talk about praying and caring for the world? Your mic is dead. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so um, I think I mentioned this last week, but I think that one of the reasons why um, there are so many people unreached in the world is because we don't believe in the power of prayer, and those people who do know Jesus aren't actually asking for um, more laborers to be raised up and to be sent out into the harvest. And so one wave that all of us, regardless of where we're living in the world, can be a part of global missions is to be praying that more people would be sent out and that more people would also hear the gospel. Um, 
And so we have some prayer cards here. I put them on this table because at the end we're going to close in prayer again and um, spend some time praying specifically for um, some of our workers from Cornerstone Church. And so we have a whole wall of these prayer cards in our global offices. If you ever want to stop by on a Sunday morning or during the week, um, you can come say hi to us too. Um, and these are all people who... Um, either are about to leave within the next week, like as in three days from now, they leave on the 30th, or they have left within the last year to go overseas, and they are doing two-year residencies with Campus to Campus, and they're all from um, Cornerstone, either serving in Indonesia or Taiwan. And so um, being a part of praying for them would be an awesome way that you can be... Um, a global Christian here in Ames is by praying for people who have been sent out from our church. And so connecting that to caring for people, the next one, um, not just praying for them, but also finding ways to encourage them. And so each, um, each one of these residents, for example, they have monthly prayer updates that they send out via email. So I printed off a few of them so that as we spend our time in prayer, you can know some specific ways you can be praying for them. But I also highlighted their emails, and if um, and that's how you can sign up to get their prayer updates. It's just by sending them an email and saying, hey, I want to join your prayer updates. Or you can use that global.cornerstonelife.com slash pray to get their updates. But the next step after praying for them would be to send them back an email saying, hey, prayed for you today. I uh, want you to know that. I'm on your team, you know, something like that. Like literally every Monday morning, our global staff prays for um, the people who have sent us updates that week. And we just send them back a one week or a one week, a one sentence um, response saying praying for you. And that is such a joy for them to know people are actually reading their updates. Um, some other ways that you can care for missionaries who have been sent out from our church is by... Um, doing things like attending our lunch and learns. So um, when we have people sent out from our church in the States to do support raising or maybe they're on a sabbatical or they're back for a, a medical reason or something like that, we have been hosting lunch and learns at Cornerstone to help them have a platform to be able to share their story and to um, be encouraged by people just coming and listening to what's been going on in the country that they've been serving in. And so we actually have one of those coming up next weekend if you guys would like to attend. It's just right after second service and it's free and you get lunch and you just get to um, meet some of our missionaries who have left from Cornerstone Church. So the one this next weekend is for Dan and Tammy Olson, and they serve in Turkey. Um, so that's another way you could care for people is just by um, getting to know them when they're back here and finding how you can be praying for them in that way. Um, we also do things at our church like encouraging our members to um, adopt missionaries into their connection group. And so what that looks like is having your connection group 
pray for people overseas intentionally to um, write them letters. So basically do what I was just talking about, but as a connection group. Um, and then the like next, next step would be either as an individual or as a connection group, actually going overseas and visiting um, those people as a way of encouragement too. And so we'll talk more about some short-term trips, but yeah, that's caring. Yeah, and just around the idea of like this lunch and learn idea or people reporting back, I, I read for you guys earlier um, Acts 14, 21 to 23, and I, that was that passage that talked about like doing, preaching the gospel and, and making disciples and strengthening churches. What's interesting, um, right after that, they actually get back to Antioch and it says, um, let's see, from there they sailed back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. And after they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent considerable time with the disciples. So it's actually like a biblical idea for missionaries to return home to their home church and to talk about what's going on. And so do you really do get the opportunity to hear and learn from them through those, through those lunch and learns and stuff. So we don't do it to the whole church because we have like, way too many mission we'd have to put up like two missionaries a week up on stage so it doesn't work out very well but these are a great opportunity for, for you to be able to hear and learn a little bit about some of those people um so the next thing uh that's on the list is just the idea of of giving and um there we have a page that lists like all the different places that we give to as a church and kind of why we give to some of those things and one of the fun things that you guys can know is that um, every dollar that's given to cornerstone 14 cents of that goes directly to global missions and um, if you add up like what's given to salt company national church planting local outreach and all that stuff it's like 40 uh, 40 cents on every dollar goes towards like outward facing ministries in our church and that's that's actually pretty rare in the church world that that much goes towards that. And that's really, a, um, you know, gratitude to the Lord and also to the leaders of our church that they've prioritized thinking about the world in that way. And so one, um, I mean, I guess one of my encouragements is just keep giving a cornerstone because it's a great opportunity and we really do try to use those dollars really well. Um, but there are opportunities on that page too. If there's, if there's money that you'd like to give in above and beyond like your 10% or whatever you want to give to the church, there's opportunities to give towards really great organizations that we've vetted ourselves to be able to think about like, you know, if you're just like, I want to give to something, but I don't know where to give to, those are some really great lists of opportunities there to give. Yeah. Also the prayer cards that we have, a lot of them are people who are also raising support. And so those are also great people to support, um, who were sent out from our church. Um, so the next thing on your list is go short term. Um, at Cornerstone, we would love to see every one of our members go on a short-term trip. That's like our 10-year goal. But that would be something that we would love to see happen because we feel like that's a great way for people to gain a heart for what breaks God's heart around the world and to um, be able to grow as a Christian here by seeing the needs in other places too often. Um, encourages something within us to be missional um, where we're planted here also. And so um, this summer, there is an opportunity to serve um, not globally, but cross-culturally at Pine Ridge, which is a Native American reservation in South Dakota. And it's 
um, historically been a high school trip from our church, but we're wanting to get more college, or um, not college, but community members involved with that trip. And I went last summer, and literally I flew straight from Pine Ridge to Zambia. So I did back-to-back cross-cultural experiences, totally different cultures. In a lot of ways, the Pine Ridge experience was more shaping in my life than the Zambian experience because it's right next door. It's one state away from us, and to see the um, the lostness there was really eye-opening, and yeah, my heart really broke for those people. So if that's something that you guys would be interested in doing this summer, it's a one-week trip. I'd love to talk to you more about that, um, but in general, we'd love to keep sending members from our church. And so even if it's not a trip that we currently have, but it's something you're passionate about, Mike and I would love to talk to you more about what are the places in the world that you already have a connection to and that your heart is burning for because, um, yeah, we'd love to to care about those places too. And so we also will have future um overseas trips like probably this next Christmas we'll do a Christmas trip and so um, that link there um, will be updated with upcoming trips too. And then um, the other opportunity is to go long term and right now what uh, this is like a pretty key focus for for us as a church. Um, We've had the privilege in the life of our church to see over 100 people go um, on two year or more opportunities and uh, a lot of those have actually happened in the past like 10 years or so and some key places that we've tried to go are those places that have low access to the gospel and um, places with university students and so right now we're focused on sending to um, a few places in India, places in Indonesia, a place in Thailand, a place in Japan, and a place in Taiwan. And each of those teams um, are involved with like, uh, well, those teams in particular are involved with Campus to Campus, which is one of the organizations we work with. And those are teams of like eight to 10 people that are all focused on reaching out to college students. And so it's really fun to see them learning language and being a part of that. And we have a two-year residency program that basically you can try it out for a couple years and then see if that's something that you want to be able to do long-term. Another one of our partnerships is with the International Mission Board. And so we're working in Kenya and also in India with them. And then we've been scouting out a lot of opportunities in Europe to be able to do those those things as well. Um, And all that stuff's kind of focused on university students. That's the primary thing that we're doing. But um, if that if you have something that's an interest that's not university students, uh, we would love to also help you be able to think about what are some opportunities around the world that you can be involved in. So, I mean, we have people that are doing medical missions around the world. We have people that are doing businesses missions around the world. Um, we have people that are teaching around the world and uh, lots of other things. So we know there's not only like one way to do missions to uh, university students, but there's lots of opportunities that are involved in there. And uh, you know, not that this is like the pinnacle of global missions to go overseas. There's lots of different opportunities. Um, but when you can get, you know, in front of somebody's face in a cross-cultural setting, know the language, that's a very effective way to be able to reach uh, the world. So those are six different ways that you can be involved in. And Shannon and I have shared some ways that we would love to see, you know, that you guys potentially could go to. So we're going to take a, a minute and just let you guys kind of think about which ones of those you would be interested in. So if you want to flip over to this next page, um, I'm going to read this top part here. And then we're just going to give you like maybe like... T- 
till 8.20 or so to just write down a couple of things. And Alana, if you want to do some cool music right now or something, that'd be great. Um, and so uh, it says here, the Great Commission does not tell everyone to go cross-culturally. However, it compels all believers to have a global mindset in their life's decisions and Christian practices. The glory of God amongst the nations cannot be an afterthought. It must be the driver of all of our life's decisions. It is God's mission, therefore it must be our mission. And so my hope for all of you is, um, man, it'd be awesome if some of you went overseas long-term, but I hope at least there will be some of those habits as a Christian that you will consider taking into in your life. Um, and uh, I think when we think of Matthew 28, I think that's at least what God is calling us to, is to think about praying, to think about giving, going short-term, some of those sorts of things. But I hope that God's working on some of your hearts, too, to welcome internationals through IFC or uh, to go long-term. And we certainly would love to have you do that. Um, so what would be awesome for you to do is you see those blanks of habits of a global Christian. Is there one, two, or three of those that you feel like God is impressing on you to do? And then are there any action steps that you, that you have? Um, so take like, yeah, take like three minutes or so and just kind of write those things down. Then we're going to close out in some group prayer time. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his face shine upon us so that your way may be known on the earth and your salvation amongst all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations rejoice and shout for joy. For you judge the peoples with fairness and you lead the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has produced its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. God, we're thankful for the blessings that you have given us. And we pray that the blessings that we have as people in this room, um, as people in this church, would be blessings that would go out from this place to uh, the ends of the earth, God. Uh, not just for our name or for the people, but for your name, God, because worshiping you is the best thing in the world. And uh, we're so grateful that we have the chance to be able to do it. So, Lord, thank you for what you've done and taught us through this uh, intro to missions class. I pray that um, the, the habits of being kind of a globally minded Christian would be something that would go on for many of us. And I pray that you'd help us to be able to continue to discern what those things are and to be able to see those throughout the week and the upcoming years. And um, God, I pray that you would just raise the, uh, the you know, kind of water table or, or whatever in our church of people that care about global missions. And so thanks just for everybody who's in this room with that, God. We look forward to um, what you're going to continue to do through our church. May our church, as long as we are a church, God, be a church that cares about um, our city, about the nation, our, our nation, and about the nations as well. And so we can't wait to see what you're going to continue to do. And I uh, just pray that you would bless each person in here with clear vision of what that looks like and to understand that they have um, so many gifts and so many things to bring. And even if that seems unclear today about what all those things are, would you reveal that to them? And would you help them to continue to seek ways that they can glorify and honor you? Because you are the greatest. <laughs> you have the, you are the most beautiful. You're the most awesome. And your works are incredible, God. And so we pray that we would love you and serve you. And we think about the things that you think about. Love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Cool. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming and being a part of this. Do you have some closing things that you want to do, Atlanta? Um, you can grab some of these uh, prayer cards or any of this, the uh, handouts back there and definitely use the QR codes for the books and stuff like that. Yeah, just wanted to reiterate, thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the time to learn. And thanks for Mike and Shannon putting this class together. I I love kind of the way that we've journeyed through, right? Like setting up the stage of why does missions matter? What is the biblical basis for it? And then ending with practical steps. I hope that you guys feel really encouraged and empowered that, yes, going overseas is a way to be a global Christian. But for those that maybe, yeah, your time is here and you're being faithful in the places that God has you here in Ames, there, there are easy inroads to being a part of what God is doing around the world. So I know Mike and Shannon will be kind of sticking around if you want to talk more about those next steps, but feel free to utilize any of those resources that we've provided in your handout or even the ones that are back there on your way out. So a couple quick things. Um, next month's crash course is a little bit more specific, so it might not hit you personally, but I want to let you know about it just in case. So our April 24th crash course will be on life after college. So if you're seeing graduation on the horizon or you're looking back in the rearview mirror and it's pretty close in sight, that is um, a great one for you, especially if you're going to be staying in AIM. Sometimes that transition out of college and you're still staying in AIM, so life is changing, but also not, um, can be a little bit tricky. If you're planning to leave and leave AIMS, um, helping to give you some tools and resources for taking those next steps. Um, either way, it'll be a really helpful crash course for you or those that you know. So that might not be relevant to you. You might be like, that's not the crash course I want to go. So for all of you plan A people um, or type A people, I want you to save the date for the May 15th crash course. That one is going to be a really incredible crash course. We're going to be talking about suicide awareness and prevention. We've seen that a lot in our community, particularly in the high schools, um, but it's something that we see across all demographics in all ages and stages, especially as we come out of COVID. And so um, I want you to know about that one in advance so that you can save the date for that on May 15th. So those are kind of what's coming up with our crash courses. Other than that, we'll see you guys. We'll be sticking around if you want to chat. But if you are able to help tear down, you can. If not, no worries. But thanks for coming, and we'll see you around.